Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Morning, everyone. Why don't we just um, bow one more time, and let's entrust this next few minutes together to the Lord. God, we believe that when you speak to us from your word, it is different from every other kind of speech that we hear during our lives. And that when you speak, it has the power to change us. And then through us, it has the power to change our world. But God, we know that without your help, without the power of your Holy Spirit, they will just be words that fall off our hearts. And so we just bow just for a moment and ask right now in this place, in this time, you would open up our hearts to you, open up our minds to you, and open up our wills to you, that we become like vessels, instruments in your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my name is Dave, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. If you're new to our church, I want to welcome you and let you know that you've caught us in the middle of a series, a shorter series, uh, on the parables of Jesus, which are some of the stories Jesus told to help people understand what this kingdom of his is like and should be like. Now, it's not necessarily that he's telling these stories so that we'll know how to shape the kingdom, but that he's describing a kingdom that by God's own power is marching forward. It's advancing. We can participate in it or be left outside of it. But it is something that we're meant to understand because God is doing this primarily. He is the one making his kingdom and advancing it. And Jesus told in, in Matthew chapter 13, he told seven stories all related to this theme of what is the kingdom of heaven like? Now, at the occasion that he told these seven stories, think about this. He was addressing a massive crowd in the thousands. They were so numerous, they just piled onto a giant beach, and he had to go out onto a boat in the shallow part of the water so that everyone could hear him. And as he was talking to this crowd, uh, in this crowd mixed in were at least two kinds of people. One kind mixed in this crowd represented the religious establishment of Jesus' day. They were the ones who were supposed to oversee God's faith and God's people during that generation. And when they listened to Jesus, they were really shocked and offended by a lot of the things he was saying. They were troubled by his boldness, by some of the ways that what he was teaching completely reversed tradition. And they didn't think he was very respectful of all the things that people had been believing for a long, long time. They weren't necessarily as threatened by him as we might think, but I think that they, they realized this guy is a problem and they need to deal with him decisively and quickly. But at the same time that they wanted to eliminate him from the picture, I think lurking in the back of their minds as the people who were in charge of everything was this idea of, like, is this little ragtag group of people under a carpenter from Galilee really going to do anything significant in this life? Now, mixed into that crowd was another group of people who were really drawn to Jesus because they found what he was saying exciting, refreshing, um, very attractive, and they wanted to hear more. But even though they were in a crowd of thousands, when they really looked around, they could tell that his true followers only were a small handful of people. That a lot of people came out to listen whenever he taught, but that his real band of followers was this scraggly little group of people, nobody among them famous, wealthy, powerful, some fishermen, uh, a, a couple political zealots. Some, they were really not people you'd look at and say, these guys are going to shape the next generation on this planet. And so even though they were drawn to Jesus, I think there was a, a, there was a sense of like, yeah, but if we really sign up with these guys, are they really the ones who are going to impact the future for God? Think about the fact that the kingdom of God seems at first blush to be such a simple concept, but Jesus knew that it was such a difficult thing to really grasp 
that in one sermon, he gave seven illustrations, trying to give clarity to people. Listen, I know you think you got it, but let me give you another story that will show you another aspect of this kingdom. And so this morning, we're going to look, if you want to flash that first slide up, we're going to look at two of the shortest parables in that chapter um, that he told, trying to describe to them yet again, through another angle of approach, what this kingdom of heaven is like. And he tells the story of mustard seeds, and then he follows it quickly with the story of leaven. And I'll unpack those two stories for you. And I think the purpose of these two short stories is to address that unspoken question on the lips and the minds of everybody. They're just hanging there. Is is this guy really going to make any difference at all? Is anything going to come of this? How could it? Because when you look at what he's working with, it ain't much. And I think if we're honest about it, there are times when we feel the same way about church, about faith, about this Christianity thing, is that sometimes it seems like such a small, insignificant part of life on this planet. That in here, on Sundays, it seems so central, so important. But let's be honest, sometimes out there, Monday through Saturday, it seems like what happens in here is such a small part of what makes the whole planet go around. And it's as if you need this time to remind you, oh yeah, there is this whole kingdom thing. But out there, this kingdom seems like such a blip on the radar. And so I think it's relevant to us as well, as Jesus tries to unpack for us, the kingdom of heaven is not always what you think it is. It's not always what, you, what it seems to be, according to the surface. <clears throat> and so the first observation I want to make is simply this. Uh, this nice picture of Jesus on a boat. Um, <clears throat> the first point is this. Don't judge a book by its cover. Listen to what the first story says. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. So what Jesus is saying is he took an available image from common culture Anyone in those days, especially in such an agrarian society, would know that the mustard seed is a pretty small seed. Now, there are poindexters all over the world that are going, well, I'm sorry, but technically this is proof that the Bible's in error because the mustard seed is not the smallest seed. Look at the orchid seed. <laughs> okay, that's great, but nobody plants orchids to eat them. He's talking to an agrarian society, and the smallest seed what anybody would plant in that day to produce a crop that was useful for humanity was the mustard seed. Let me show you a mustard seed. Okay, that's a mustard seed. It is so tiny that to make a pound of mustard seeds, you would need 330,000 plus of those things just to make a pound. It's a very small seed, but it's an interesting seed because when you throw it into the ground, it germinates almost instantly. It's one of those like Jack and the Beanstalk type. You put it in the ground, and like, oh my gosh, look, it's growing already. This thing wants to grow. It's got so much potency in it that before very long, it starts to look something like this. In fact, comparisons have been made between the aggressive nature of mustard plants' growth and kudzu. Anybody know what kudzu is? Have you ever been to the south? I, I lived in the south for about two years, and kudzu is scary stuff. It's like this vine that just grows over everything, covers entire forests like a giant blanket. And scientists are dying to know if there's any way we could eat that stuff because that would solve world hunger right there. This stuff grows. And that's the nature of the mustard plant is even though it's a very small seed and you hold it in your hand, you go, eh, what's this going to do? You put it in the ground and bam! This little seed produces something you would never have imagined by looking at it. The message is clear. You can't always know what a thing will become by looking at what it is in the beginning. That's true of so many things in life. It's probably true of many of us. When you first met us at the beginning of our life's journey, everyone would have underestimated, yeah, you know, whatever. But then you give us a couple years, let God work on us. And even today, even though we're not fully finished with our journey, we can say by, by God's grace that we have become more than we ever imagined we would become in this lifetime. Uh, you know, I love Apple products, so I have to just give a, an illustration here. 
This is the very first Apple computer built by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak in his garage. And look at that. It's actually wood. I mean, that's real wood. They carved the, the words Apple into the backing piece of wood. Who could have ever guessed looking at this that this device would completely change our lives, that soon we would be holding something a thousand times more powerful, probably more than a thousand times more powerful, in our hands, in our palms? Who knew that it would become this? This is the latest Mac Pro. It looks like something Darth Vader would use to power the Death Star. Who knew that it would evolve into something as elegant and light as this, that we'd carry these things around and they would work anywhere? My goodness. Who would have guessed that the operation that started in this garage in suburban northern California would someday come to be housed in this spaceship-like campus? That's Apple's new campus. They call it the spaceship, and it's going to be completed in 2016. It's amazing how far everything has progressed from what most people, most pundits would have guessed is really a, a cool little toy, but it's not going to amount to very much. And that's really how it felt to be at the dawn of the computer era. Everyone's like, okay, but what are we going to do with this thing? Who needs that much computing power just to live everyday life? Do you really need a massive device to keep your grocery list when we have things called index cards and pencils that even Abraham Lincoln had at his disposal? Who knew? But if you looked at the beginning, it's a simple message that is pretty universal in life. You can't always know what a thing will be like by looking at what it starts like. And I think that's important for some of us to hear because we're actually, if you think about it, we're here. We're, we're, we're what happened? We're, we're in the garage. We're not here yet. And I'm not talking about money, prosperity, happiness. I'm just talking about the way you look at yourself, your life, how much the kingdom of heaven has dawned even in your world, your personal world. And you're wondering, this is the state of my life right now. These are my friends. This is my career such as it is. This is my physical health. This is my marriage. This is my faith. Like, I, there just isn't very much to speak of. When you see me today, I wonder what I'm going to become because I don't feel like I'm going to turn into anything in this lifetime. And some of us might have come to church this morning in that exact place looking at ourselves and saying, I don't really expect very much from God or from myself. Well, here's the thing. What Jesus is also teaching through this is the key ingredient to advance his kingdom are not the things we might normally expect. If you ask God, what is it that is required to build this kingdom of yours? His answer would probably be radically different than yours and mine. See, I think when you ask people today, what is required to advance God's kingdom? A lot of people will say things like this on their list. We need some smart thinkers. Let's get the smartest people in the room together. And that word smart gets thrown around a lot, especially in business and consulting circles. Smart is godlike. You know, if you're smart, you can do anything. But I think morons have built God's kingdom as effectively as smart people. Look, look, you know what I'm saying? Like, we didn't know anything when we started the church. We were tripping over ourselves. I'm not saying smart is bad. I'm saying smart is not nearly as important as we pretend that it is. I'm not saying try to be dumb. I'm just saying that we place a disproportionate amount of trust on cleverness, on creativity, on innovation. You look at Christian bookstores today and almost every new title coming out has the word innovation in it. It is the sexiest word if you're a Christian author today. Is, guess what? I got the newest book on innovation. How to be more clever than the last 2,000 years worth of Christian leaders. We're going to reboot the system and do it better. Maybe, I hope to God's glory, something great will come out of all that. But we assume that what's needed are smart people. We also assume what's needed are deep pockets. We can't do this great work if we don't have tons of money. Oh, really? Because the truth is some of the greatest things that have happened in the world haven't happened because they were well-funded enterprises. But because somewhere along the way, God gripped the heart of a person and the impossible began to unfold. I mean, you think about, when I say mercy, compassion, need, taking care of the needs of the poor, what name immediately comes to your mind? Say it out loud. Somebody who typifies, personifies compassion. Say it. 
Mother Teresa. I didn't have to coach you at all. She has become a household name. What did she have when she started? What did she have when she ended? See, it wasn't because the Pope said, um, Teresa, I want you to go to India and I'm going to give you like a billion dollars. You do something so that soon you will become a household name equivalent to mercy and compassion. Some of the greatest things God has done in our world haven't happened because they were well-funded enterprises. I'm not saying money is unnecessary or even unwanted, but it is not the thing that we give confidence to as God's kingdom advances. We might think that we need eloquent communicators. So much is made of people who can speak well, give good talk. Strategic leaders, amazing facilities, large and well-trained staffs, all good resources. But if you ask God, what does he really need to advance this kingdom? I don't think any of those things would make the top of his list. I think what he would say is, if you give me one person whose heart is completely devoted to me, set apart for me, fully belongs to me in loyalty, believes that everything I say is true, that everything I say is possible, is possible. If you give me one person that crazy, that sold out to me, I will rock this world through that one person far more effectively than through all these massive things we're rolling out in his name. I really believe that the greatest things God has done on the earth have happened through people whose hearts were completely sold out to God and to holiness and to a vision of him that exceeded them. Look at what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. He wrote that in the context of making a comparison. He said, in a large household, you see two kinds of different utensils. In fact, here's a great illustration. I have two plungers in my house. Okay? Well, I shouldn't say two. I have two types of plungers. One, I wave around at my kids and scare them with because they think I'm going to give them cooties. But it's the plunger I use to unclog my drains in my sinks. Because, you know, when you live in a house with women with long hair, every drain and every sink for some reason clogs up and eventually starts to back up. And I used to pour chemicals down there. I discovered the only thing you really need is a good, clean plunger. You just go, whoosh, Just like that, the water's draining again. And so I've got what I call my clean plunger. And then I've got the other one. <laughs> the one you don't want to put on anybody. And sometimes when my kids are misbehaving, I, I take out the clean plunger and I start coming after them like, ew, gross, get away from us. He's saying that in any house, there are two kinds of utensils. One that you just sort of use for, you know, whatever. You don't care about cherishing it. It's not going to do anything life-changing. It's there to be used and forgotten. And other vessels, like Mother's Good China, are used for special things. They actually are honored possessions. They do important things. And what he's saying is some people will exist in God's household and others will be used for purposes that will shape his kingdom. They will become critical parts of the story he's unfolding, this kingdom he's advancing, not because they are by nature made of precious materials or anything like that, but because of what? They have been set apart, committed to him. They want what he wants. They belong fully to him. And for that reason, they are now useful as instruments to the master of the house. I really believe that for this kingdom to advance, it doesn't require all kinds of fancy things. It requires hearts that truly take God at his word, that are foolish enough to believe that when God says this is possible, you go, okay. It's the way that kids just think their dads are amazing. Up to a certain age. What age, if you're a dad, at what age did your, your children realize you're a complete loser? That you're like mortal and not so great. I think for me, it was maybe six to eight years old, somewhere in that range. Then like, oh, dad's just a guy. But, you know, you'd ask a five-year-old, hey, daddy's going to just run to California. I'll be right back. And you, come, and you come back from the room, you're like, oh, my gosh, that's so far. And they look at you like, did you just really run to California? They're stupid, but they're so full of faith 
that when you say you can do a thing, they actually go, yeah, you could totally do it because that's my dad. He's the strongest man in the world. He's the smartest guy I know. He can do anything. And you know, what Jesus meant, I think, when he said, be like children, he really meant, think of your father the way little children always think of their dads. Especially in the best of situations. That you look at your heavenly father and you go, well, he says it's possible. Who am I to tell him it's not? Am I going to take my PowerPoint out and show them, well, Lord, I know you said it's possible. These are the demographic studies, and this is the economic trending. And, you know, I say that actually without this and this and this, it's no way it's going to work. God goes, you dummy. Daddy said it could be done. Do you not believe that it could be done? Because if you don't have that simple faith, it won't matter how many tools you have in your arsenal. You cannot advance the kingdom without thinking of God this way. See, one of the surefire tests of whether I am building a kingdom of my own, on my own power, or building the infinite, vast, eternal kingdom of God is whether my faith exceeds my abilities and my resources. There is an audacity associated with real kingdom of heaven vision. An audacity that says, this is ridiculous. The challenge set before us is so disproportionate to the size of our church, to our pocketbooks. It's, uh, yeah, I care about it. Of course, my heart is broken. But what the heck are we supposed to do about this? I mean, be serious. Be reasonable. I know you're flashing pictures up, and I want to cry too. But what are we really supposed to do about this? It's bigger than all of us. We can't do anything. And there's something about the kingdom of heaven that says, yeah, you might think so at first blush, but pause for a second. Because God has, through human history, consistently done what people said was impossible or too great for anyone to make a dent in. And that's how we know whether what we're pursuing is kingdom vision or stuff that we could do because we could do. In 1952, an American missionary named Everett Swanson visited war-torn South Korea. And when he went to South Korea, what he saw, is as if God gave him selective vision. He gave him eyes to see only one part of the aftermath of this horrific war. He saw the children who had lost both parents and were orphaned because of the war. And everywhere he went, he saw children walk in the streets unclaimed. And he said, this is not right. Something is seriously wrong in this country. There's an entire generation of children who will grow up without parents. And they are, winter was coming. And he saw that many of them were half naked. And he said, I cannot just let this stand. It bothered him so much. It was such a heavy burden on him. And have you ever felt like that when you've gone to a place where the brokenness is so vast, it overwhelms you? If you let it in, your heart will drown. It will almost like electricity, like a taser going off in your brain. It overloads you. You go, I can't handle it. I have to almost numb myself just to, just to be sane because if I really think about the depth of this problem, it's too much. And I think that's the way Everett Swanson felt when he looked at it. He says, God, this is so vast a problem. An entire country, thousands of children, and they're on the other side of the planet from me, And yet God would not let it go. And then while he was there, a fellow missionary friend approached him and gave him this challenge. He said, you have seen the tremendous needs and unparalleled opportunities in this land. And here was the fateful question. What do you intend to do about it? You've seen it. And God didn't show it to you just so you could be worried about it so you could acknowledge how great the problem is. He said, what is it you intend to do about it? That question, you might think, sounds like a man-centered question, but it's actually a very God-centered question, because the minute you ask that question, you think, what can I do about it? It forces you to a place of faith, not ability. It forces you to say, really, honestly, how could you even ask me that question? There is an audacity to the question itself. Imagine if I did a ride along with a police officer and we're cruising the worst neighborhoods of the city and I said, this is pretty messed up. What are you going to do about this? What if we walk through the wards of of a hospital or through the slums of some of America's poorest communities and saw the level of education and the poverty? And I said, hey, look at this. What are you going to do about it? 
Wouldn't your first instinctive response be, what do you mean me? What are any of, what's the president going to do about it? What's Congress going to do about it? And you would reject the idea that that's a question that's even fair to ask you. What are you going to do about it? But that question will haunt you if you let it, because it will drive you to this place. You say, I don't know, but what can God do about this? I can't just, because the problem is so vast, write it off as, well, there's another one of those for the books. It's too great. What, are you, what is anyone supposed to do about this? You'll see, if you read biographies, that the people who have shaped our world are people who heard that question and actually started thinking about that. What are you going to do about it? Well, Everett Swanson came home. and He said, I'm going to start telling people about my burden. It's crazy. Half the people won't care. But I'm going to tell them. Some of the people he talked to had lost their own children in that war. And he was going to tell them about the plight of orphans on the other side of the world. And so he began to tell. And as soon as he got back, the first couple people he told, their hearts were so moved, they wrote him substantial checks. This is back in the early 50s. They wrote him a check for 500 and a check for 1000 bucks, And he took that as a sign from God that when he spoke, it wasn't how compelling he was, but that when he spoke, it was like a virus jumped out of his mouth into their hearts. And they got infected, and they started to do something. And pretty soon, it turned out that wherever he went to share, people's hearts were moved, not because of his eloquence, but because God was up to something. And he was watching and marveling at this. Look at how many people are suddenly made to care about a thing that just an hour ago was not even a part of their lives. He decided to incorporate, and then he began to make this his central obsession, his core ministry. Some nine years later, he and his partners were sponsoring 108 orphanages in South Korea. And you fast forward to today, and his organization, Compassion International, is taking care of over a million children across the world, and over 100 of those kids are being supported by the generosity and loving faithfulness of people in this room. This is the nature of the kingdom of heaven is that we're confronted by something that seems far too vast to even poke at. And then somebody asks that audacious question, what are you going to do about it? And the heart that belongs to God says, I don't know, God, what are you going to do about it? I believe something can be done because I believe you're greater than I am. What are you going to do about this and how am I going to be a part of it? See, I think whenever God is on the march, you can't explain what happens because people were well-funded or smart or eloquent or persuasive. Whenever God's really at work, there's always that X factor, something else. Do you know what I'm talking about? You can't quite explain it. You can't quite put your finger on it. But what you say is there's a mystery here. Something about this person is different from something about that person. I, I watch the Disney Channel a lot because of my kids. Sometimes I actually enjoy it. But, you know, I think, why is it that one mop-headed kid who can kind of sing called Justin Bieber is so fabulously wealthy and rich and famous and loved, and some of these other kids are just like B-level actors? They sound the same to me. They look the same. You can interchange any of these kids today. I'm like, what's the difference, really? I take those five kids from one direction. I'm like, yeah, Whatever. I know five other kids just like them who aren't famous and can't. You know, and, and you wonder, what is it? It's like that with the kingdom of God. You can't just say, well, it's because of this. It's because You say it's because there's this mystery, a power at work underneath the surface. You can only ascribe to the supernatural. God is doing something so that I can't simply give credit to all the tools and instruments that were aimed at that problem. Now, let me just quickly address this last story of the leaven with one simple point. The reason he brings that additional story into it is say, do you see the nature of the kingdom is that what you see now in the beginning on the surface is not always what we're up to. The kingdom of heaven is greater. It's growing more aggressively than meets the eye. But then he gives this last story of the leaven to indicate also that the nature of the kingdom is that it will have a disproportionate influence on the world around it than what you might expect. He tells a story where he says, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour 
until it worked all through the dough. Now, usually, women don't like thinking about yeast. Maybe it's not something you think about every single day. But yeast is a very important part of our world, isn't it? This is yeast. <laughs> Saccharomyces cerevisiae. It's baking yeast, and it's a very, very important thing. You put this inside dough, and what happens is as it sits there, it ferments. It's a fungus. Did you know that? Yeast is a fungus, and you, on purpose, put it into the food you're going to eat. Here's uncooked dough. Let's put fungus in it and just, just knead it all around. The reason you knead dough is so that the fungus works all up and in all the crevices of it. And then you leave it sitting out overnight. Why? So that the fungus can ferment. And as that fungus ferments, it releases CO2, carbon dioxide. And that carbon dioxide forms little pockets of gas in the dough so that when you bake it, you get this fluffy, delicious Yummy, chewy stuff. Yeast is the difference between that bread and hardtack. Have any of you bitten into a piece of hardtack before? Yeah. Hardtack is, is probably what Samwise Ganji would tote around to give to Frodo. It's like, you know, on a long journey, it's the most efficient way to pack carbohydrates. You bite it and you're like, this is drywall. Well, I don't know what this is, but it's bread minus one ingredient, yeast. It's hard, it's disgusting, it'll break your teeth. And it's yeast that makes the entire dough rise like that. It changes the characteristic of the whole thing that it touches. The way it would work in ancient Jewish culture in, in the world of that day was there would be some yeast that you would have, a little piece of dough. When you found dough that had yeast in it, it was precious. And you would take that little piece and you would preserve it. The woman would keep it in a special container in the kitchen. And every time she wanted to bake, she would work up some dough, a large batch. Jesus in his story says about 60 pounds worth. That's about equivalent to a modern bushel. It would make enough bread for maybe a week to a month for a very large household, especially in a bread-driven diet. And so she would take that little piece of yeast-infected dough and she would mix it into the much larger batch of dough and leave it sit until the whole large batch was infected by this yeast. And then she would reclaim another small piece of that and she would set it aside so that each time she bakes, the yeast would spread, it would multiply, and then you would pull a piece away and save it again for the future. In fact, it was such an important thing in the kitchen of those days that when a young Jewish girl got married, her mother, as a wedding gift, would give her a small piece of yeast-infected dough and say, may this now bake bread for the rest of your family, for the rest of your life. And that one little piece of, of yeast-infected dough would continue reproducing, affecting, influencing every new batch of dough for the rest of her life. The worst thing you could do is forget to pull that little piece out. And you're like, I done baked all of it. Oh, no. Do you want to go to your neighbor and say, can I have some yeast-infected dough, please? The purpose of that story is to say this. When God's kingdom is on the march, first of all, the way God intends to affect the world is by having his agents thoroughly mixed into the fabric of the dough of the world. He does not intend necessarily that we live in small compounds with large fences walled away from the world, never go to happy hour, never go to casual, uh, casual hangouts after work, never go to parties where wine is served. I don't think God is intending for us to shun the world and say we want to have no contact with the world. I don't think God is saying that the only place you can ever be is in church. What he's saying is the way his kingdom advances, he is kneading us like yeast. We are the world's yeast infection, if you will. I know that's an awful kind of verbal turn of phrase, but in a way, that's what we are intended to be. We are to work our way through this entire thing, not as distinct particles within it, but as something that touches every other part of it. That is why I believe that the most important place we could have been this past Halloween was not carving pumpkins in a special gathering of just Christians, but with our neighbors, getting to know them, to let them understand the love of Jesus Christ coming from our family, our house, to be there and greet some of these kids coming to the door. And, and I, I'm not arguing against a different choice. I'm saying it was an intentional choice. It wasn't because I like candy. 
It was because I feel the need to see my neighbors. And on Halloween, they're all out on the streets walking around. I don't normally make a practice just walking down random streets going, hey, I don't know you, but could you be my friend? That's weird. But on Halloween, all the people are out. And I get to know so many new people who live up and down my street. I believe one of the things God wants to do is take his people who are already infected and knead us into the whole dough. And what he says is when that happens, if we really are infected by the true kingdom, then the influence we will cast over the whole world will be so far greater than what you might expect. That in the final analysis, we won't have just made a little difference. We will have shaped the entire thing differently than what it was supposed to turn out like. I don't think it's being dramatic to say that a small group of Christians can change the world. Do you realize 12 blue-collar simpletons laid the foundation for a faith that we are still practicing with great zeal two millennia later? Do you realize it's not so dramatic to say that because that's the history, the story of our whole faith itself is that from very simple beginnings, the world gets changed by people who fully are infected by the kingdom of heaven. So let me turn our attention quickly back as I close to Compassion International. I was just contacted this past week by our friend Richmond Wandera. Do, do any of you remember him? He was the brother from Uganda who um, was a Compassion-sponsored child. This is Richmond. You might recognize his face. And uh, he, just, he just reached out this past week to get in touch. Richmond was fatherless and living in poverty with, with a burden for his siblings in Uganda. And a young girl, I think she was 15 years old, living in Georgia, felt so moved by a presentation at her church that she decided, you know, I'm going to give up some of the things that I can buy with my allowance as a teenager because I want to sponsor somebody. And so she sponsored Richmond as a 15-year-old and stayed with him all the way through the end of his childhood. She wasn't much older than him, but he called her mom. That's how he felt about her. And it wasn't just the money she sent, but the letters and the expressions of deep, unconditional love she would give his way changed his whole life. In fact, it so completely changed him. He got the attention of the people who lead Compassion International. They have a select program for the people who they believe are really, um, if you invest in them, they were going to be world leaders in the future. And Richmond made it into that program, and they paid his way through an accounting degree in the University of Uganda in Kampala. He came out with a bachelor's degree, and God made an open door for him to come to Moody Bible Institute to work as a compassion ambassador and to pick up a master's of divinity. And then he went back to start a ministry in his home country of Uganda, and I went to visit and help lead a pastor's conference a couple years ago, and I was amazed at the disproportionate influence God had given this young man. I was just amazed that there were pastors who had walked, let me say that again, they had walked from five different countries to get to this conference. I mean, I, I fly on a plane, I'm like, oh, I'm so tired from the flight. <laughs> At least I didn't have to walk across two countries to get to the conference. And they didn't eat along the way because they're, they're just that poor. Most of them came to the conference with scraps of Bibles they had received from others, handwritten verses from memory, and we were able to give them, by God's grace, study Bibles through this ministry and the uproar of gratitude and joy over just receiving a study Bible. Amazing. I watched the folks from Crossway in South Africa at the Lausanne conference giving away ESV study Bibles, and people were just walking past, you know. And I just think, in this place, God has given Richmond favor. And I've seen in a short time how, like a virus, his vision for his part of Africa spread. He reached out because he wanted to let me know that he's now back in the States, in Pennsylvania, pursuing a Ph.D. And I just think, who in the world would have looked at eight-year-old Richmond and thought, well, there's a future scholar and a person who's going to shape his nation? There's not a person even in his own country who would have thought that. 
But I really believe that Richmond is a man of destiny because he's sold out to the kingdom of heaven. And I believe if anyone's going to shape the future of Uganda, he's going to be among the people at that small table, shaping what his country looks like in decades and perhaps centuries to come. And the reason I share that is because who could ever have imagined that an American missionary's burden for orphans in South Korea would evolve one day, 60 years later, to touch and shape the life of a young man in Uganda who would then go on to shape his country and bear a burden. And it was at that conference I met another young man named Nick Makuna, who was from the, the People's Republic, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and he's living in London but bearing a burden for the orphans in his own home country. And I'm, I marvel at the way God works, like dominoes falling. You look at the final story and you go, how did we get here from there? Was there a design, an intention? Did anyone plan any of this? And the answer is no, but such is the nature of the kingdom of heaven. Is that when God's kingdom is on the march, you have no idea what's going to happen. Because God knows more than us, because God sees more than us, he does more than us. He will always do more than we plan. You set out to, to fix hunger, and God shapes the political future of another nation. I mean, that's just the way our God works because his kingdom isn't like any other kingdom. It has a disproportionate effect on the world around us. Now, that doesn't mean everybody who claims Jesus as their Lord will have that influence, but the ones who are sold out, completely gripped, infected by this kingdom, who believe Father God the way a five-year-old believes in Daddy, those people will have a disproportionate influence on the world around them. You know, maybe you needed to hear this message this morning because you're in a, a couple different places. Maybe it's because you are steeped in a battle in your own life that you start to feel right now like, I'm going to give up. I've been patient. I've made all the right moves. I've tried to be obedient, but I don't see anything changing. And maybe you're in despair, wondering if hope, if this kingdom that we keep talking about will ever really rise in your life. Because you don't see it right now, you're wondering if you'll ever see it. And I believe God wanted you to hear this message this morning to encourage you that you cannot gauge God's kingdom by what you see today. But know this with certainty, that what God promised will come to pass. It may take a while, it may take a while longer than you want but God's kingdom will come, and that is a sure thing. And maybe you needed to hear that this morning because he's saying to you, do not give up on this kingdom. It is rising in this world, and it will touch your life. You just cannot give up. And for those who persevere to the end, they will see the kingdom of God. Maybe you needed to hear it this morning because God has broken you for something that has broken him. You, he's given you what Pastor Bill Hybels calls a holy discontent. Something that has so agitated and bothered your spirit, you cannot stand that this exists in the world today, this problem, this need, this issue, but it's so vast you're defeated by it even before you start. I hate poverty, but what is one person supposed to do? And maybe you're sitting with that, just it's stewing on you. I know people who have heard about trafficking in this country and around the world and are so indignant, are so troubled by it because it's a huge problem. It's heartbreaking when you hear the stories. And maybe it's that God's doing something in you. He's infected you with that. It's stewing and stewing in your soul. But every time you want to do something, that voice of reason pops back on and goes, really, honestly, what can we do about such a great problem? And maybe you need to hear this message because God is saying, I infected you with that. And you need to stop asking, what can we do? And simply say, God, are you going to do it? Can you bring me on board? I believe that you care about this. And I believe that what you can do can fix this. You can address this problem and meet this great need. And maybe you're in a third group. Maybe for you, what I said at the beginning of this message is so true. That in here... On this hour, once a week, the kingdom of heaven seems important and real. But every hour of every other day outside of this building, it seems like such small potatoes. 
And out there, it seems like when you're not at church or with church people, it's the real world, the kingdom of the world that seems like the real story of this planet. It's what seems sure. It's what seems reliable. It's what seems important. And maybe you were here this morning wrestling with the temptation to just kind of give up on this faith and go, really, is this that important? Is this what is meaningful in life? Isn't everything out there the real world and real life? Isn't this somehow just a weird game where we get together once a week and try to convince each other of things that aren't true? And maybe that's where your heart is wrestling. As you've grown up in church, it's become a habit for you to be here. But really, the honest truth is that the kingdom of the world feels more real and substantive to you than the kingdom of heaven. And that's because it's the kingdom you see everywhere, everywhere around you every day. Well, these stories from the mouth of Jesus are meant to give you encouragement, challenge. I know you may not see his kingdom every day, but it's the kingdom that will prevail. It's the most real kingdom there is. It's the one eternal kingdom. And everything else that we are living for and see others living for out there, everything else will eventually come to an end. But this kingdom will go on forever. And it requires faith to believe that. It's how you stay sane, being kneaded into the broken dough of this world. Some of you won't survive in your career without this kind of kingdom faith. That this world, this kingdom in here, is more real than the kingdom you have to muck through and wade through every day. And for some of you, you need to hear that this morning. And in great faith, just believe it and take it to heart. Right now, the kingdom of heaven can seem like a very small thing. But one day, it will burst fully onto this earth and everyone will see. And those who had faith and believed and persevered to the end will be vindicated. Why don't we bow our heads and pray together? You know, I'm going to be really honest with you. Sometimes when I fly on airplanes... And I see other guys sitting next to me, pecking away at their phones, and they have their laptops open, and they're getting one last spreadsheet sent out, and they're busy making deals on the, their little Bluetooth headsets. And I look at them and think, man, they look so important and busy. And, and then I, I take out my iPad, and I'm reading a book on the theology of rest, and I'm going, I feel like, I don't know. There are times when I wrestle with, is what I'm doing really that important? Is what I'm doing real or are they participating in the real world? I see people who say things like, well, if, if this life isn't working for you, walk away. Trade up. Put it down. Why do you have to spend, life is too short, why do you have to spend a minute longer in doing something that stinks when you could just trade it in for something better? And sometimes, because my whole life is about fighting with people, not against them, but with them, to persevere. I wonder, man, there's something so freeing, so tantalizing about that idea. If you don't like it, walk away. Trade up. And then I read stories like this from Jesus. And re really rebukes and challenges and encourages my spirit. It reveals to me where my eyes have been and where they need to go. It's true that one day my family will no longer walk this earth. My marriage will be over. This church will cease to exist. Everything I've lived and worked for will be part of the dust. But the one thing that will remain forever is my soul and where I stood with Jesus Christ. What I thought of him, what he thought of me. And the days and years we spent walking together that's eternal. Nothing else matters nearly as much. Where are your eyes this morning? Why do you feel emotionally the way you feel right now? Our eyes need to be on Him and on this great kingdom. Not where you're getting discouraged and where you feel like giving up. So let's take a moment together as a church family. Let's redirect our eyes to Jesus 
to a heavenly father who can do what seems impossible to us. Let's pray. The greatest work of the kingdom of heaven usually happens beneath the surface where eyes can't see. And that's why Jesus and Paul and others repeatedly tell us that you can't really be a part of this kingdom without faith. If you only have physical eyes, you will only see things that seem incomplete and discouraging. But with kingdom eyes, you will understand that right now, even now in the midst of brokenness and defeat, God is doing more under the surface of your life and of this world than you could possibly imagine. That is why it's never a bad idea to wait on God and to trust in Him. His kingdom is for now so much an invisible kingdom, but one day it will burst into the visible world in the most powerful and undeniable way. Don't give up. Don't stop believing. And why don't we pray together for ourselves and for the people around us that we will be a church family that never stops believing that God is able. Never. That if nothing else is true of us, we will say this to our dying breath, God, I can't, but you always can. You are able. Let's pray that together for ourselves and for our church. Let's pray together. God, help us to be people who, as we follow you, walk by faith and not by sight. For some in our church, faith is dying. It's fading away. So we pray that you would take our eyes off of the things that make your kingdom seem so small and turn our eyes to you. Surely we cannot live and see the end without faith. So give us faith that is persevering, faith that lasts to the end. We believe in faith. Your kingdom is marching steadily on and you are doing far more than our eyes can see. You never sleep. You never rest. You are active even now in our lives, even at the moment where we feel we are at the lowest valley and cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel. You are here in our lives and you are working mightily on our behalf. You are not giving up on us. And so we pray you will give us faith in your kingdom and in your kingship not to give up on you. Father, we also just pray that if you've laid a burden, a holy burden on the hearts of any in our church who are grieved and righteously angry over the brokenness they see around them, if you are calling them to do what is impossible for us, infect them with the vastness, the power and influence of your kingdom. Give them childlike faith to believe that what is impossible for us is possible for daddy. And somehow through that faith, that submission to you, shake this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.